However, that is arguably nothing compared to arriving in Prague barely days after Heydrich had just been assassinated. Welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War, Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. This episode, we are looking at a first for us, which is a Royal Australian Air Force escaper by the name of Pilot Officer Keith Bruce Chisholm. Good name. Good name for an Australian. You can't beat a bit of Bruce. He was flying with 452 Squadron, which was a Royal Australian Air Force unit within the Royal Air Force. But it's quite an interesting, this one. Brought up in Sydney, educated at college until 1936. Left to actually train as a dentist. Okay. So no interest in aviation at all. But he joined the Royal Australian Air Force the moment that war was declared. But he didn't actually train there. He became part of a new experimental program, which was called the Empire Air training scheme. Now that was a really interesting scheme. It took place in Canada and it is basically, even to this day, the single largest aviation training scheme in history. In total, it trained nearly 50% of all Allied air crew for the British, Australian, Canadian and New Zealand Air Forces, as well as the British Fleet Air Arm. Okay. So nearly 50% of people all went through the Empire Air Training Scheme, including Keith, who was actually one of the first graduates, as in one of the first Australian graduates, which is why he was in the war so early, because as we've seen, there was quite an issue with training within the UK at the time. Battle of Britain was going along, Mm -hmm. phony war just happened. There wasn't a lot of areas for training. So even though people were signing up in their droves, unless you'd trained pre-war, you weren't actually seen quite early in the war. We're seeing him here in 1941 already on active service. Mm -hmm. So by going to Canada, it's obvious, there's no fighting over there. Weather's generally not too bad or you can experience all the ranges of weather you need. And they've got lots of open space. So it meant that you could accelerate the training through. But he finds himself in May 1941 with 452 Squadron, Mm -hmm. mostly in Spitfires. He did a lot of flying in the Spitfire Mark V, which was a really good little all-round little baby Spitfire with cannons in it and everything else. And he had actually quite a successful career through August and September because as a relative rookie, he actually got seven confirmed kills okay. by September 1941. Which, bearing in mind everything was on the offensive at the time, the enemy weren't coming over massively. We were having to go to them. Mm-hmm. So to get seven kills in a fairly short period was pretty good. And what was the level required for an ace? Five. So he was an ace. So he was an ace at this point. Fighter pilot. Yes, in two months. Fair play. Very fair play. Now, interesting point I'm going to raise now, which is quite relevant later. I couldn't actually get confirmation whether he was on this trip or not. Okay. So I tried to get the operational record book downloaded. Various reasons, mostly technological on my part. Computer said no. Uh, <laughs> I've only got the basics what I could find on the actual research that was out there. But one of the interesting missions that went on during August of 1941, of which 452 Squadron was a part, was they were given escort duties for a formation of blending light bombers but what was different about this was it was actually a pre-coordinated trip with the germans okay the germans were going to let these bombers fly into occupied territory Mm -hmm. with an escort of spitfires for one purpose and that purpose was to drop a set of replacement false legs for douglas barder right okay now 452 squadron and their spitfires were on the support for this Mm -hmm. 
Now, whether this is cheeky or not, the Blenheims, after they had dropped the legs, carried on to a power station and bombed it, at which point the Luftwaffe were sent up and several kills were gained on this day okay. in August. It's very possible, and I will add, I haven't managed to confirm it because I couldn't read the ORB for it and I haven't got access to his logbook, but it's very possible that because he got his seven kills during August and September mm-hmm. and several kills happened on this day and it's notable of the squadron, he potentially got some of those claims on an escort mission for dropping Barda's legs. The relevance of that will become apparent later. So I think we probably need to have a look at what happened on the actual day. So I'll refer back to his report and we're now looking at the 11th of October 1941. He says, I was a pilot of a Spitfire aircraft and took off from Kenley on a fighter sweep over the coast of France. On the return journey, when approximately over Berck, which is just south of Calais, on the part of Calais, right on the coast, I was shot down and was compelled to bail out. I can't think of anything more compelling but to jump out than being shot down. Mm. It's an interesting choice of words there, that he felt compelled <laughs> to bail out, having been shot down. I came down in the sea, about half a mile off of Beck, which is where they were fighting. The Germans came out in a sea rescue launch picked me up and took me into the town so i'm guessing this was probably at a fairly low level fighter sweep mm-hmm. we've discussed them previously of the different types of fighter sweep that were going on at the time and it was eminently close enough for it to be a witness that he was shot down and was seen to parachute out hence why the germans picked them up they took all of my escape kit from me and sent me on to centre i was moved by car to lille and from there on a train to delagluft that place that we have heard of so many times so many times here i was put through the usual procedure of solitary confinement think solitary confinement was a usual procedure he does mention that famous red cross form Mm -hmm. that we've seen so many times but solitary confinement upon entry to the camp have you come across that before not unknown yeah really yeah on the basis of softening them up a bit ah okay prior to interrogation exactly i get you yeah if you're in solitary confinement for say 48 hours not spoken to anyone except a guard who brings in food you might be a bit more ready to have a little chit chat yeah we chin wag once you get back into the interrogation room with the German interrogator, who of course we know to have been Eberhardt. Yeah, who was spent time in uh, Canada. Canada, wasn't it? So our Canadian accent of for, for you, you the war is over. over. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, it looks like he spent the usual sort of two to three weeks there which is fairly standard because mm-hmm. he says he was moved on to Lansdorf another name that has come up repeatedly um, by the end of October so within three weeks he was moved on to another camp so yes we, we do find him in Lambsdorff by the end of October 1941 and really his story doesn't really begin to pick up until April 42 now he does say that during the winter of 41-42 he and another pilot uh, Sergeant A.R. Stewart of the same squadron began formulating a plan to escape. Now in total Chisholm made three escape attempts. Right, okay. And so this was the germination of the first one. So he states, in April 1942 Stuart and Chisholm changed identities with two soldiers in order to be allowed to join a working party. Now he of course was a pilot officer so he wasn't required to go on a working detail. Yeah, we've seen this before. We have seen this before so he had to change identities and he states that he changed identity with a Corporal Mitchelson while Stuart changed identities with a Maori from New Zealand named Wakeford. We joined a working party but on the way I was stopped at the gate and taken back to the camp and made to do three days in the cells because it had been discovered that Mitchelson, with whom he had changed his identity, had stolen potatoes. Oh, unfortunately. So he hadn't actually been discovered for changing his identity he, in fact, quite the opposite, they accepted his new identity so completely that he ended up having to serve time for offence he didn't commit, an he didn't commit which Excellent. might have explained why Mitchelson was so ready 
ready to change identities. Good point. I hadn't thought of that. Nonetheless, Stuart was able to wait for him, and the incident only really caused a delay of a couple of weeks. So a fortnight later, they eventually joined this working party and were employed on repairing the railway lines. Now, we know from previous escape attempts that being detailed to a working party on a railway line, or at least the railways, is not necessarily a bad thing. Because it gives you ready access to a very rapid form of transportation away from the camp. Indeed. So Stuart and Chisholm, now Mitchelson and Wakeford, Yep. had garnered quite a bit of interest from others on this working party in making an escape. And in fact, 14 people in total were interested in... Which is quite, getting, a, quite a big escape number. Quite a large number, yeah. We've heard of tens, mm-hmm. and you know, pairs are quite common, but 14, that's quite a lot. Mm. It does also mean that they had a lot of hands ready and willing to help them make the escape. And so they were able to remove floorboards of the old mill in which they were billeted. They removed the ventilator, but replaced it, so they were able to get in and out quickly. And on the night in early June 42, they were able to remove the ventilator and crawl out along a small stream and were able to meet at a bridge. However, there were some cross wires which meant that he missed his rendezvous with Stuart and so he ended up travelling with a Canadian who was serving in the Grenadier Guards and another British soldier. He couldn't remember the details specifically as to who this British soldier was but the three of them ended up travelling together and not with Stuart as was his original plan. Now the plan was to get to an address in Prague where they were to make contact with some Jews there. Now, of course we know with the hindsight of history that making contact with Jews in Prague in 1942 was quite a high-risk approach. Very high-risk. However, that is arguably nothing compared to arriving in Prague barely days after Heydrich had just been assassinated. Which we know the reprisals to the locals and those who were suspected of helping or not helping the Germans, so to speak, was severe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So they did the journey on foot and it took them about 10 days to reach Prague. And because of the context around the reprisals, as you say, following the assassination of Heydrich, they had great difficulty in getting help with people being extremely nervous about the reprisals from the Gestapo. And there was a number of people being taken hostage at this time. Because of that, they weren't even able to get civilian clothing and had to travel in British battle dress, moving at night and sleeping during the day. While on their journey, they approached the house to ask for hot water and bread in exchange for some cigarettes that they had. The owner of the house pretended to be friendly, giving them a meal, inviting them in, etc. Mm-hmm. However, they soon discovered that he'd sent for the police who walked in and arrested them, where they were taken to a Gestapo prison in Brno, where they were interrogated. As we said a minute ago, this is a bad time to be captured by the Gestapo. It is. And they probably wouldn't have been aware of the assassination attempt either, would they? Probably not, and certainly not when they made the initial escape. No. Yeah. There are parallels with Bushel, but the parallels also extend to the fact that they were arguably protected to some extent by the Geneva Convention. We've already said, not the case with Bushel, but we've already said with them that they are in battle dress, so there wouldn't have been a lot of doubt about the fact that they would have been captured prisoners of war. Correct. And so as a result of this, they were actually sent back to Lambsdorff sent back to the prisoner of war camp from the Gestapo. It wasn't unknown. Being captured by the Gestapo was extremely high risk, as we know from a number of other escapers. Yeah. But it wasn't unknown for them to be returned. Aerie himself, mm. for example, was yeah. captured by the Gestapo and managed to return to a prisoner of war camp. So having returned to Lambsdorff, he was almost immediately put 
into barracks to await his sentence. However, the Australian medical officer, Captain Rose, organised for him to be moved to the hospital on the grounds that he had stomach trouble. Now, while in hospital, he came across one wing commander, Douglas Bader. Funny that, isn't I it? I know. What a coincidence. In fact, it genuinely was a coincidence. It, it really was, yes. Yeah, they, <laughs> but, they wouldn't have known each other outside of, uh, outside of that hospital. And there he also met a flight lieutenant, John Palmer, and the sergeant pilot, Hickman. Now, these three have been sent to hospital for electrical treatment. Now, I think you want to pick up on that a little bit. So, Bardo is known by many for having serious injuries pre-war, but had returned to flying, so he had effectively lost both of his legs. Now, when he had to bail out from his stricken Spitfire, it's well known that one of his legs was trapped underneath the rudder pedal, so he had to release... One of his false legs. One of his false legs, yes. He had to release that leg in order to get out the aeroplane. So, he was effectively without a leg, which I don't think the Germans would have minded too much, because it definitely meant that he wasn't going to be escaping anytime soon. However, he was well respected on that side by the Germans, so it was arranged that a replacement leg would be dropped over. However, it's also well known that his legs did cause him some considerable issues. It did rub a lot, and it did cause him some considerable pain. And looking up this electrical treatment, it was generally considered minor electrical therapy of nerves and muscles and things like that can help with the healing process. So it's fairly safe to say that all of those contingent that were there were all there for the treatment of various injuries that maybe weren't healing as well as they could or needed some extra assistance. Yes, I find it quite interesting you say that the Germans were quite confident that Bader wouldn't be escaping anytime soon because he actually went to strenuous efforts to achieve precisely that. Exactly. Throughout the war and actually ended up in Colditz. He did for, for his efforts. Indeed, I want to pick up on that a little bit because Chisholm was to join with Bader, Palmer and Hickman in an escape attempt. Mm-hmm. And what I find particularly interesting about this is this corroborates what I'd always assumed was a little bit of a part of the Bader myth. Bader is a famous name. There's no question about that. And much has been written and spoken about him. Yes, and some of it is mythologised to some extent. There's a famous story that involves Fokkers and Messerschmitts that we don't know if it's true or not, but it's certainly been assigned to him and uh, we won't repeat the story now, but I would strongly urge anyone to look up because it is actually quite funny. Equally, he was certainly not adverse to playing up to his own myth. Correct. But to be fair to him, he also, as you say, he lost his legs in an acrobatic stunt pre-war, returned to frontline duty upon the commencement of war. He was an ace, I believe. Yes, he was, yeah. And he, he wasn't the sole person to do that. There was another individual who lost their legs and also returned to duty, but didn't get the same limelight. No, but nonetheless, if only two returned to the front line, oh, it's a major we're, we're talking about a achievement. major achievement to yeah. even just return to fighter duty here. Yeah. And as you say, there was a lot of difficulty with his legs and he certainly was a major headache for the Germans and so while there is a big part of Bader that is mythologised it is not without a basis of fact Correct. I think it's fair to say. Very fair. Part of that mythology, if you like, was that he was almost obsessed with trying to steal a plane and flying back to the UK. And I'd heard this story a number of times, but I'd never actually seen anything to corroborate it. No, I mean, most people are aware of of escaping by aeroplane in the the Great Escape film. Mm. That famous event that never happened. Well, it happens in the film, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But not part of that escape. There are records of people on both sides. Mm -hmm trying to or even partially stealing an aeroplane was a popular was a popular option obviously amongst pilots who'd been captured correct but as i say until i read this report 
I'd never actually seen Bader's effort being corroborated. I'd always just heard it as part of the story, part of the Bader myth that he tried to steal this plane. Until now. As I said, Chisholm, Bader, Palmer and Hickman have joined up to form an escape plan here. In order to make this happen, further changes of identity have to take place. So he says, I arranged to join the delousing party in order to meet at the delouser, a private Tims of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force with whom I was to change identity. Scheme came off, Tims became Mitchelson and I became Tims. So we've now got the original Mitchison is now in the camp system as Chisholm. Yeah. Chisholm has gone from Chisholm to Mitchelson to Tims. Yeah. And Tims has now gone from Tims to Mitchelson. Makes perfect sense. It really does, doesn't it? And so he returned to the barracks as Tims. In this working barrack, Chisholm arranged for two men to impersonate Bader and Palmer, and also another serviceman called Edwin Carter to, to join them because of his useful knowledge of languages. The two men accompanied the working party for the search and interrogation to which every party was submitted. On leaving the interrogation room, they left the ranks and their places were taken by Bader and Palmer. So they, they've now switched identities too, yeah. and are on their way to an aerodrome. Which is a good challenge for whoever had to impersonate Bader, because not necessarily just by name, but by motion. You know, you have to effectively become that person rather than just pretending to be them. Yes, so, exactly. mimicking somebody who's lost and both of their famous. legs. And he was famous. I mean, he didn't merge into the crowd. Correct, yes. So, picking up the story. After a very heroic effort on the part of Bader, who marched three kilometres to the station and six further kilometres, the party reached the aerodrome. As it would have been impossible for Bader to undertake normal work, we got him a job as a cleaner of the lavatories and general orderly. Owing to a letter which Bader had previously written to a German general, his absence from the hospital was discovered. It was suspected that he was on a working party and every working party in the area received an order for personnel to take down their pants for investigation. I mean, that makes perfect sense. It, it does. If you're looking for a man with no legs, remove your trousers. Correct. Our working party refused to do this. Again, makes perfect sense. And the suspicion of the German officer who had given Bader permission to act as an orderly owing to his bad legs was aroused. He had immediately accused him with the word, you are Bader and Bader had to confess to his identity. In order not to spoil our chances of escape, Palmer then also gave himself up. So it leaves two still in the system to potentially get away. So they've given themselves up in order for the other two to stay in the system under their assumed identities. Yeah. So returning to the camp, they were then joined by a Sergeant McDonald who was an American in the Royal Canadian Air Force. It wasn't unknown for Americans to go up to Canada in order to join the Air Force. Correct, yeah. yeah. Particularly in 41 before the Americans joined the war at post Pearl Harbour in, in December 41. In, indeed. I, I've come across a number of individuals in the photo reconnaissance unit who are American-born but flying under the RCAF. And so McDonald joined Hickman Carter, uh, who we mentioned earlier, who, who was the specialist in languages, and Chisholm in forming another escape group. The plan was to cross the Polish border and make contact with Poles in order to assist with further movement. And they didn't hang around. On the 11th of August, only two days after the discovery of Bader and Palmer, they made their final escape. They made their escape via the boiler room. So the boiler room of the camp was in the corner of the camp near the wire. Right. So they managed to sneak in using false keys that had been made by the prisoners. And the prisoners were also able to communicate to them the beat of the guard outside. So basically when the guard was furthest away from the boiler room, they communicated by a series of knocks that that's the time to get out. So after the all clear signal was given through a series of knocks, they left the boiler room and were able to climb over the outside barbed wire. From there, they walked along the road to Stropping 
Altendorf, then headed southeast in order to avoid the industrial area, which of course was why the working camp was there to assist the industrial area. And by this stage, they were heading into Poland and actually walked for six nights, heading in an easterly, southeasterly direction, and eventually made contact with Poles just outside of Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz is better known to history and the world as Auschwitz. Right, I didn't know that. Yeah, that is the Polish name for Auschwitz. Okay. Now, they didn't in and of themselves have any interaction with the concentration camp themselves so that is where they made contact with the poles and over the following two months they slowly but surely made their way across country staying at various farms and country houses eventually making their way to krakow which is the nearest city in the area and it was in krakow that they made contact with the polish underground now the original plan with the polish underground was to head towards turkey that's a fair old distance exactly going through hungary so connecting up with various resistance Groups making their ways sort of south, southeast towards Turkey, as you say, a fair old distance. And that may have been the reason why it didn't really come off. Right. However, before this could materialise, Lance Corporal Jeffrey of the Royal West Kent Regiment turned up and said that he had orders to take us with two Polish women to Warsaw. Now, Lance Corporal Jeffrey is an interesting character. Okay. Because he was a prisoner of war himself, managed to escape, and actually spent several years working with the Polish underground. I see, which is what he's doing here. Uh, which is what he's doing here. So we're talking about late 1942 by this stage so he, he would have been fairly well established with the Polish underground yeah so to some extent if you've got a British soldier working for the Polish underground his word would have been very well respected and any orders that he gave would have been acted upon yeah Jeffrey was actually to spend another couple of years working in Poland for the underground he was an expert in languages spoke several languages learnt Polish on the ground mm-hmm. and was eventually to return to the UK in about 44 but he was to spend several years working for the Polish underground. A useful man. A very useful man. Actually, Chisholm gives some idea of the importance of Jeffrey within the context of this Polish underground movement because he states that during our association with Jeffrey, covering the period from early October 42 to December 42, I can fully corroborate accuracy of his account in relation to this period. So he's clearly a well-respected individual within this underground movement in Poland. Yeah. In the end, he did travel with the two women to Warsaw and was actually to spend several months there. In fact, he was to stay there until March 1943. Mm, it's a considerable stay. Yeah. He lived with a family while in Warsaw and spent the time learning Polish. So in the time up until March 1943, the Polish underground had worked to establish a line that would take them to Paris. And on the 23rd of March 43, MacDonald and two other soldiers who were in Warsaw with him left for Paris. Now, Chisholm was due to leave a couple of weeks later, but due to this line being infiltrated and broken by the Germans, owing to the arrests in this organisation, it became impossible for him to follow them and so he ended up staying for even longer yeah that makes sense in warsaw yeah and eventually by july 1943 polish organization told him that there was nothing more they could do to help him get away other than provide him with some papers money etc so he's on his own he has left his own devices effectively yes so he is still in Warsaw with Hickman, who he first met way back in the hospital with Bader. Yeah. And he was the other one who, of course, stayed incognito within the camp system. So as I say, he's still in Warsaw, and it was Hickman who met two Belgian workmen who had escaped from Minsk and were trying to make their way back to Belgium. Now, these Belgian workmen agreed to take them to Belgium so long as Hickman and Chisholm provided some paperwork, specifically a Kriegsurlaubsschein, which I had to look up. Right, yeah. And is an army leader pass. Okay. So they were planning to travel as German army soldiers. On leave. 
only. Okay, which would make sense because they could be potentially traveling long distances by train. Yes, absolutely. Home. So as we've said, he's been left to his own devices, but the Polish underground are there to help him with papers and money. He actually says to obtain this paperwork caused us no difficulty and only required a delay of a couple of days. But being able to get hold of an ID card took much longer, with the Belgians becoming quite impatient, to the point that one went off to Warsaw by himself, while the other having managed to get hold of paperwork of their own return to Belgium. So in essence, they're in Warsaw, and because they've met these Belgians, they've now got systems in motion to get hold of the paperwork for them to travel. Yes. So although they're not actually travelling with the Belgians, they are they're prepared to. They're preparing to. However, while waiting for the ID card to be produced, Hickman is arrested on the 10th of December. 10th of December of 1943. So effectively 14 months after having arrived with the Poles. Yes. So he's managed to survive 14 months being hidden effectively. Mm Mm-hmm. No, we don't have too much detail as to how he was arrested or on what basis he was arrested. Presumably they knew he was an escape prisoner of war. What we do know is that he was initially handed over to the Wehrmacht and after 10 days of being badly beaten up was handed over to the Gestapo and was shot by the Gestapo. Oh. However, we also know that despite that treatment, he gave nothing away because no arrests were made as a result of his capture. So they must have had some sort of intelligence that he was working with the Polish resistance. Must have done, yeah. But he managed to keep Stum and protect those who protected him. Brave man. Mm, indeed. While he was still in Warsaw and waiting for this ID card to turn up, he did manage to meet two Dutchmen who were interested in joining him in a plan to steal an aircraft. Oh. A highly original idea, which we've never come across before. Now, while this did not materialise, while he was out walking with one of them, they were stopped and questioned by a policeman who was looking over this Dutchman's papers and was about to arrest him. And it was at that point that Chisholm picked him up and threw him into the river. That would do it. That that would do it. That's one way of, of avoiding arrest. It, it is. Unsurprisingly, after that incident, the Dutchman decided that it was maybe a bit too dangerous for them to escape with Chisholm <laughs> and honourably said that they would follow him if his scheme to reach Belgium was successful. I like it. Yeah. So roughly 18 months after his escape, on the 23rd of March 1944, arrangements were finally completed for him to leave Warsaw on a military train for Brussels via Berlin. That's a ballsy move. It is. Heading to Berlin. Well, all the more ballsy because he was travelling through Berlin as the Great Escape was taking place. Oh, wow. So he left Warsaw on the 23rd of March 1944. Yeah. And we know, of course, that the Great Escape took place... The next day. The very next day. Now, while he had no overlap or interaction with the Great Escape at all, what we do know as a result of the Great Escape is that a hue and cry, an enormous countrywide search and recapture mission was taking place. So this is not a great time to be an escape prisoner of war in Berlin. No, but in fairness he wouldn't have known that. No, no way he could have known it, it's just unfortunate timing but it is the timing of the situation. So he arrived in Berlin on the morning of the 24th of March and had to wait until the evening in order to travel on further. So he spent time in cinemas, restaurants and viewing bomb damage. And so having killed time throughout the day, he eventually left Berlin at around about 11 o'clock that night, which for timing's sake was around about the same time that the first person left Tunnel Harry. So eventually having reached Brussels by train from Berlin, he made contact with a Belgian who he had met in Warsaw and was willing to guide him across the French-Belgian border. So he stayed at his house and he arranged for a guide for them. 
And so on the 3rd of May, he left Brussels with his guide and moved towards the French frontier. Now, they were held up on the frontier for around about a week. But after a week, they received French papers and travelled to Paris, reaching Paris on the 10th of May, which by total coincidence was four years to the day after the German invasion of the Low Countries and France on the 10th of May, 1940. Yeah. Now, he was actually to stay in Paris for quite some time. Which I imagine could be convenient with the Allies about to land. Well, in, Again, in, not that he would have known. But. No, not that he was to know, and we are talking about less than a month prior to D-Day. But the usual process when you reach Paris was to start heading south, and you know, towards Marseille, towards Perpignan, crossing the Pyrenees. We've discussed this at, at length. Yeah. Head towards Gibraltar, basically. However, he does not. He stays. And while for the first little while he is essentially hidden, he eventually joins the French forces of the interior, or better known as the French resistance, Mm -hmm. but went by the initials FFI, and was to stay and fight with them in street fighting during the liberation of Paris in August 1944. Blimey. And it was after that that he was actually able to make contact with the American forces upon their arrival. I mean, of course, the resistance would have let him know that the Allies had landed and formed a beachhead. Yes, of course. So that probably directed his attention to... But that was still a month after he arrived in Paris. Oh, true. And while they knew something was coming, the resistance weren't informed until the night of the 5th of June. And so having made contact with the Americans, he was put in touch with a General Quesada, who was in command of the 9th American Air Force, who in turn arranged for him to be returned to Bayeux in Normandy, where he was interrogated and then returned to the UK on the 29th of August 1944, which was actually more than two years after his initial escape and five months after leaving Poland. I mean, that is phenomenal. I mean, I did manage to find a little bit on him post-escape. Being Australian, and whilst there was still obviously the war ongoing in Japan, it wasn't uncommon for a number of people to return back to their home countries, either for training. So I didn't find any record of him continuing any operational flying after he returned to the UK. What I did find of note, though, that was interesting was that he actually sponsored a member of the family who had hidden him in Warsaw to go to Australia and actually met with her in Sydney in 1946. The next reference I got, jump forward to the early 1950s, he's then back in Paris, where he got engaged to a French girl and started to become a wool buyer in France before then taking that trade and making a career of it and moved to the USA in 1957, where he continued in the wool industry until he died in New York City in 1991, aged 73. So he didn't seem to spend any more time in Australia after the end of the war Mm -hmm. and went into a completely different field of industry. So having trained as a dentist, become a pilot, he ended up as a wool buyer. Yeah. As a career. Amazing. And two years on the run in the middle. Yes, in Poland as well, where I can't imagine he spoke the language particularly well, although he does say he learnt it with the family, but it can't have been an easy 18 months he spent in Poland working with the resistances in Poland and in France and in France yes amazing man well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcast or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O or if you want to send us a more long form message you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com